Wonderful. Thank you, Joel and Darla. Welcome again, everybody. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, 1 Timothy. And if this is your first visit or first time at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we welcome you again. Today we are going to do an overview of 1 Timothy. And over the last several months, we have been working through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as a congregation. So today is your chance to get a Cliff Note version, all right? And, and we're going to go through, because it's been quite some time, we want to see where we've been and how we progress through it. And when we set out at the very beginning, I propose that perhaps the best summary statement of this entire book exists in chapter 3, in verses 14 and 15. And there Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, He's a young pastor who is assigned to the church that is in Ephesus. He says to him, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. As we look at that verse, there are three obvious themes that become apparent right off the bat. First, the local church is a place of order. We discovered that over the last several months. Paul refers to this assembling of Christians as a household. Uh, He's not referring to a building when he speaks about the church. The local church in Scripture is never referred to as a building. Uh, The church is the gathering together uh, of God's redeemed people. It is the gathering. And uh, most of the time we meet in a building. It makes things really comfortable. Love the air conditioning and other things. Really wonderful. But the church itself is the gathering of God's people, uh, not a building. We just meet in a building. The household of God, then, reflects a group of people who are organized. You know, when you read uh, about the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, that was a church that was really disorganized. And and in fact, it it was so disorganized that it was embarrassing in many ways. And and there was no identifiable leadership there. Uh, It had become a free-for-all. Worship had become very man-centered, It became chaotic, and it was focusing on individuals rather than Christ. And then, after a lengthy letter of correction called 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 14.40, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So church is orderly. It is is organized. And then in a a complement to the rest of of New Testament, uh, of the church... First Timothy is given in particular to show how the church is properly ordered. So here we learned that, that leadership consists of elders who oversee the church. There are deacons who are recognized as servants of the church. And then we learn how men and women are to behave in the church and their roles in the church. Yet I'm getting ahead of myself. Another part of our theme verse told us that there's also proper conduct. So there's a sizable section of this this book, 1 Timothy, that spoke to us about conduct. And uh, how do you behave when you're in relationships with other redeemed folks? We'll get there in a few minutes as well. And finally, and in my belief, the most important part of 1 Timothy in regards to the church is his last statement 
in chapter 3, verse 15, he says it is the church of the living God. It is a pillar and it's a support of the truth. It's not a pillar, it's the pillar. It is the support of the truth. No other support of God's truth exists. The church is the support of the truth. Even Scripture itself, the Bible, if it is not interpreted and and laid out by Christians, to unbelievers, it's just folly. You need to have regenerate, born-again Christians who are alive to Christ in order to even interpret this book. So without the church's presence, Scripture is folly. Uh, Throughout history, you you look at civilizations as as the church has come in and interpreted Scripture and precepts have been laid down to build societies. Wherever there's been a void of of the church, there's been a very dark society. Very dark society. Uh, Culture becomes a dark place when Christianity evaporates from it or before Christianity gets to it. So the church has this responsibility to be the pillar. We're the pillar. We defend the pillar. And this is where Paul starts with Timothy, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 3, if you'll watch with me as we, as we do an overview here. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So after Paul was released from his first imprisonment, We spoke several months ago about how he made a circle back to the churches that he had helped to found, helped to establish. And he was disturbed at some of the spiritual conditions in some of these churches that he came back to. And the worst of these churches he had found, there was either a void or a failure of leadership in some some way. And therefore he appointed another young man named Titus, who he left on the island of Crete, to appoint elders in every city there, he said. And he also assigned Timothy then in Ephesians. And he gave a charge to both of these men in both of their realms of influence to reestablish leadership. To Titus he said, For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. And then writing to Titus and Timothy, and these are what we call pastoral letters. First and Second Timothy and Titus, they're, they're for pastoring, they're, they're guidelines for the church. In these letters, Paul provided to both men numerous qualifications for, for those who would be considered uh, to be an elder and a pastor and a deacon. And in Ephesus, uh, we have discovered or found, rather, that the first group of elders that was assigned there some years ago somehow had vanished. We don't know what happened to them. We can only speculate to what happened and look at the conditions in Ephesus and wonder what might have caused them to leave or driven them off or what ill might have fallen upon them. But the elders were gone. And in, in Ephesus, as they vanished, the result was that there was teaching of strange doctrine that was creeping in. Whenever there's a, a, a vacuum of leadership, a void of, of leadership, those who are ungodly are going to backfill it and teach other things. And, and they'll happily do that. So when Timothy was left in Ephesus, his first and highest responsibility was to defend the church against false doctrine so that it could remain a pillar of the truth. That's why Paul needed him there. And uh, uh, 
Timothy had run into a situation in verse 7 we find, if you look there, that rather than salvation by grace and through faith, the men there had seized upon the church and had started teaching adherence to the Mosaic Law. If you remember, uh, even though they didn't understand the law or even realize what kind of confident assertions they were making, how they impacted people, they didn't understand things. They were trying to bring people under the law. And Paul clarified uh, in chapter 1, the law is not a how-to manual of how to become righteous. It's not a how-to manual. The law instead is a tutor to show us how unrighteous we are. That's why we have the the rules, do not covet. Why? So that when you covet, you realize you're unrighteous. Do not steal. Do not dishonor your parents. Don't uh, take the Lord's name in vain. All of these demonstrate to us, they're a tutor to us, that we're not right. We're not right with God. We've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And the law in verse 9 exposes our sin, of which Paul knew real well. He had a really good understanding of this. Before God had intervened in his life, he thought he was righteous. He was a Pharisee. Uh, He strove to keep the law, and he wanted to defend the law. And, And he stood opposed to grace, free salvation by the gift of God. He stood opposed to that. In fact, the church really angered him. Paul then Saul, the Pharisee, was furious at the church because the church started teaching that God's salvation is a free gift. And Saul, the Pharisee, said, no way, we're going to keep the law. So he defended the law, he opposed the church. Paul, the apostle, in verse 13, while he was Saul, persecuted the church. He he admits he was a blasphemer, he was a violent aggressor. And we find in other passages that he, was, he even presided over the execution of Christians. He even threw women into prison that were Christians. He was a really a bad guy. So in verse 15 of chapter 1, he admits that he was the chief of sinners. He says, I was the foremost of all. That says a lot. Yet, by, while being the most violent of sinners, God even had a plan for him. It's amazing, God's grace. And Paul received mercy, we see in verse 16, because Christ wanted to demonstrate to us the extent of patience and the mercy that he could give. No boundaries to the grace that God will offer in forgiveness. Paul was... Paul was a model for all who would believe. And verse 12 says that even after all the evil that he had done, Christ still placed Paul into ministry, into service. And and this text here, we find this evidence of a line of demarcation in the believer's life from before you became a believer and the evil that you did and and the transformation of the human heart and, and, and the the uh, desire that you have to live a life of righteousness afterwards and to serve God. This line of demarcation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 assures us, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So new things had come for Paul. 
And, and he shares that with Timothy. Remember what happened to me. And, and at the same time in verse 18, he said, Remember what happened to you too, Timothy. Timothy, embrace your call to ministry. Verse 18, fight the good fight. Don't forget what happened to you. How God has changed you. Stay in the fight. And that's how we, we wrap up chapter 1. Then chapter 2 begins with a call to prayer. And it's really not the type of prayer that we gravitate to very well. If you look at the first verses there with me, it says to, to pray for kings and all who are in authority. gives the reasoning so that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Um, we discussed at that time in that passage, if you were here, about how Christians are not ungodly rebels. We're not rebels. You know, Scripture demands many places throughout the New Testament and, and merging with the Old Testament that we remain respectful, submissive, and obedient to authority. We don't like that very well. We don't like that very well. We pray for those who are in authority, we are told, whether it's civil government, whether it's the head of the household, whether it is church leadership, even whether chapter 6 says we find ourselves a slave. We are to give our master honor so that the, the Christian faith won't be blasphemed by unbelievers. We have a testimony that we're living out and being obedient people. And, and, and we discussed how Americans, you know, we really have a big problem with this. We really don't like this at all. Uh, we've got a problem with authority, and that's found its way into Christ's church. We spent some time on this because we're taught from early on I don't have to follow anybody. I don't have to listen to anything that anybody tells me what to do. We're autonomous. We're Americans. We're free. I don't care if he wears a badge. I don't have to respect him. I don't care if the person signs my paycheck. I don't have to pay due respect. And consequently, Christians, we're often viewed as poor citizens. Not all, but we're often viewed as poor citizens because of our attitude, the disunity that we sow. And in general, quote-unquote Christians, they're seen as meddlers sometimes. We talked a lot about that at length. I'm not going to go further here. But we discovered that none of these characteristics can be reconciled with Scripture. Instead, we're to be known as respectful, obedient, hard-working Unfortunately, American, quote-unquote again, Christians, we identify more readily with the midnight ride of Paul Revere than we do Jesus Christ and the apostles suffering for the faith. And uh, with elections coming just over the horizon, I believe that Pastor Weiler is going to have a very special message on this for you next week. Uh, I'm going to be far out of range by that time, so it's, it's all yours. <laughs> Moving on, the second half of chapter 2, we are reminded and encouraged that God has created men and women differently. We are different, praise God. <laughs> praise the Lord. And contrary to modern society that has always been teaching us as of recent uh, that, that we need to remove all gender distinctions. Instead, Scripture says that God created genders by His design and for His glory. Remember those messages? 
And, and we learn that men were created by God to lead, and, and the women were created from man's side as a helpmate, but both were created for God's glory. And we noted that distinctive genders uh, and their functions, they existed before the fall. Sometimes we want to behave as if, you know, this, this separation in gender and these different roles and these, you know, men do this and women look, do that and we dress that way and, and they dress that way. That's somehow a result of the fall. No, no. It was evident by God's design before sin ever entered in, in the fall. Uh, God makes that very clear in Scripture. Men are men. They're not to behave as women. While women are not to seize the role of men. In fact, both of their desire to do so and, and to take the other role actually is a signal or a sign of the fall. It's a result of it. It's a result of the curse. And we throw off of our identities and our roles. And though men and women are equal in Christ in regard to redemption, in regard to spiritual value, we retain our distinctive roles all to the glory of God. Though we behave differently, we look differently. Praise the Lord for that too. In response to God's purpose and design, a born-again Christian seeks to give glory in identity with their gender. You can't get around that in Scripture. And, and in verses 11 and 12 of, of chapter 2, it says, A woman's not to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. We spent some time there. And, and many churches have thrown this off. And they said, no, we're not going to obey that tenet of Scripture. And the problem that comes there is, well, what part of Scripture are you going to obey then? When you have something clear and you're not going to obey it. Um, so we looked at that uh, with some detail and those messages are online if you want to go back into that detail. But the male and female roles are different, and it's not a result of a temporal culture issue. Some, some churches, some denominations will teach that, that this call uh, for women to act as women, not to teach or have authority over a man, that that's a very isolated issue in Ephesus. Something cultural going on there. We don't really know about. We can't be sure. Something must have been wrong in Ephesus. And that's what they say. The problem is you can't reconcile that to Scripture. Because keep reading, and you see in verse 13, Paul cites the reason as creation. For the man was created first. So he says it's not at all about what's going on in Ephesus. It's about the way God created us. It's the way it's been from the beginning. And when created order is rejected, and we allow the roles to be reversed, verse 14 indicates that we're under deception. We've been deceived. And that leads to chaos. Um, and because, uh, as well, our gender is knitted into creation. It's knitted into us, male and female. Uh, because our temperaments reflect that by God's design, this isn't isolated in the church. You see this uh, throughout civilizations. Male and female have different roles. And it's not something just given to the church. Um, if you remember, I had Pastor Weiler and Miss Andreas stand up and turn around and face you and ask if you could see the difference. Obviously, there is a difference. Praise God, yes. Praise the Lord. Um, God made it this way. God made it this way. We also took 
an entire Sunday to discuss the natural and inherent, uh, inherent value of women. Do you remember we went through Proverbs 31, which discusses the excellent woman? And that details all of, all of the roles, all of the capacities uh, and, that a woman can enjoy, all the fulfillment she can enjoy, all the inspiration that the Bible gives her as a woman in, in many diverse capacities that a man doesn't typically enjoy. And, and, and she, she can do virtually nearly anything, as long as it doesn't make her give up her responsibilities as a woman, except there's one thing she can't do. She can't be a man. And if there's one thing that a man can't do in Scripture, is be a wife or a mother. You can't do it. And uh, the gender distinctions are so obvious, as I said, I had Pastor Weiler stand up. Moving on. Chapter 3 began with the qualifications of elders and deacons. And the in-depth study that we had there of those two roles facilitated the adoption of our new constitution and bylaws. And they turned out very well. That was done back in July. We found that the elders fulfill a governing role. The deacons are recognized in the serving role. And First Timothy was able to help us craft that. The character requirements were essentially both uh, the same for both, except that those who desire to be an elder must be able to teach. It's a credibility issue. If you're going to lead, you have to be able to teach uh, God's Word competently. And we noted that the excellent character qualifications, they're by no means reserved for elders or deacons. They are anticipated of all Christians, all men. And uh, in fact, we see from the balance of Scripture that Christians should consistently display upright behavior, but it must be habitually evident among those who would lead. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, Christians are warned of a coming apostasy. There there it's called a falling away in a lot of translations from the faith. And and this falling away, it's not triggered by some kind of secular or cultural uh, group. Instead, the apostasy is going to be provoked by those inside the church. And there are going to be people who are outwardly religious, but their doctrines are deceitful. For they contort the Bible to where their teaching doesn't accurately reflect what God's talking about. Uh, God intended the Scriptures to say one thing, and they're contorting them to make it appear as if God said something else. And and it is possible, for instance, to, to cite Scripture and make it appear as though God is saying something else. Not that hard to do. It happens all the time. If you wanted to, you could make an argument from Scripture that it is more godly to abstain from marriage. If you wanted to, you could make an argument um, that you should abstain from certain foods to become more godly. In, In fact, you could even make the argument that to be more godly, we should be worshiping on Saturday. That would be the original Sabbath. You can make those arguments from Scripture. But you can't be loyal to all of Scripture. What you have to do is take passages out of their context and remove them from Scripture in order to defend that. But you see it done all the time. You remove a passage, I believe I heard that talked about this morning in Bible Life Group. When you're observing, you've got to look at the whole context of what the Bible teaches and what the individual book teaches. And not just take a little verse out here and there, because you can 
basically make a verse say whatever you want, if you want to contort it enough. You have to avoid that. And because of this, verse 6 reminds Timothy to point these things out to the brethren. Point it out to the brethren. A good pastor is going to warn their flock to be aware of these things. Be looking for these things. Be looking for context. Um, Be aware of misuse of Scripture and false doctrine uh, so that you don't get sucked into it. So so Timothy was to uh, tell his people to beware. And uh, he was, in, in response, supposed to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. He is to be constantly nourished. That means the pastor has to be continuously investigating, reading, looking at history, literature, the Bible, in order to preserve sound doctrine, so that we don't drift away from what is sound and what is true. And I talked at that time, there's a lot of fables, there's a lot of myths out there. There really are. And Pastor Weiler and I steer away from fables and myths. We do all we can to avoid it. We pursue competent research. You know, I, I talked to one of our elders here last week about the time to put into one sermon message. And I put in somewhere between 15 to 20 hours on one sermon. Right about half the week. Pastor Weiler puts in right about the same, and he does near that for a youth message. That's how much time it takes. Um, that's, a, that's average, basically, across the country for a Bible teaching pastor. It's about average, half the work week. You run into some of the heavy lifters, the heavy hitters like John MacArthur and Mark Dever and others. Some of them are putting 30-plus hours in on one message. And they're diligent. Of course, they have support staff you know, and other things that they can turn to. So they have that time in order to do that. And it's part of the reason they're so good, as well as their natural gifting. And um, they have that time to screen out the fables and myths because, be really honest... Good research on history, on what has happened on the scriptures, it doesn't come by Wikipedia. It really doesn't. People can get on Wikipedia. You and I could get on there and edit things right now. It just is not reliable. It ha- it's useful. You can find out what years the Mets won the World Series. I mean, there are facts you can get by it. But it's not a resource in order to find out what truly happened in the past, or how Scripture is truly represented. And um, by doing good research, uh, we, we strive to avoid doctrinal error. It takes diligent preparation. Another way that we avoid error is in verse 13. It says, Until I come, Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Then in verse 15, it says, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay, a close, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So, false teaching is, is avoided and exposed by staying in the text. Staying in the passage. We attempt to read sizable sections of Scripture, not little itty parts of pieces of Scripture. He says, pay special attention to the public reading of Scripture. Teach passages in their biblical and historical context. Paul tells Timothy, that young pastor, take pains in this. Because when you stay right in the passage and you're working through the passage, people are going to see if you're taking it out of context. 
they're going to have questions. They're going to wonder, what did he do? Just three verses ago, it just said something completely different than what he just told me. So we take pains to stay in the Scripture. And, and that's a pastor's primary job. Make sure the Scriptures are proclaimed. That's, that's how change happens in people's lives. Both to unbelievers and to believers. Unbelievers become regenerate. Their hearts are changed and they become believers through the proclamation of the Scriptures. But, uh, believing Christians, they become edified and strengthened and grow through the teaching of the Scriptures. It all comes back to the teaching of the Scriptures. God's Word imparts wisdom. For Paul uh, said to Timothy, in essence, in 2 Timothy 4.2, you know, Christian impostors, impostors, they're going to come. They're not going to endure sound doctrine. He said, therefore, preach it. Preach it. Sort them out. Looking into chapter 5, we transition on to social issues. We spent three weeks, if you remember, on widows. We had the widow in deed, the widow in need, and the widow in greed. Remember those three weeks? And, and we saw that the woman in deed, that she had impeccable character over a very long period of time. She was a role model. She, she was going to be placed on ongoing financial support because of the life that she had lived. And she was respected by all because becoming, before becoming a widow, verses 5 and 10 show us that she had a reputation of being a prayer warrior. She was helping those in distress. And she had been devoting her life to every good work. So placing her on the list of financial support, it didn't become an exchange, a financial exchange for future services. It wasn't that we pay her now and she repay us later. No, that's not it at all. It was in recognition of her loyal and ongoing and historic Christian service. That's why she was put on support and her impeccable conduct. And now, um, now she's been completely left alone. She has nothing else, the, the widow indeed. And the widow in need, by comparison, we talked about her. It is a widow who has needs but isn't completely left alone. And we talked about how the primary responsibility uh, for her is first uh, taken on by her own family. She, their family is responsible. Uh, children and grandchildren are responsible for taking care of their aging parents and grandparents. In fact, we, we learned that or the financial responsibility for, for aging parents and grandparents, both male and female, falls on their own family. And verse 8 tells us, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16 says the church must not be burdened. And, and even unbelievers, we talked about how even they know this is right. Even an unbeliever realizes that you've got to take care of your family. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that. So the, the, the care of a family falls on them. And, and we, we debunked the myth at that time of how somehow this, the church is obligated to meet every single need that comes along. That would be impossible. Absolutely impossible to meet every need that knocks on the door. We can't do it. Financially, it can't be done. Our, what we do our best to do is provide basic human necessities. 
we, we look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, that, that consisted of food and covering. And we're told with these we'll be content. Basic human necessities. Then there was the widow and greed. We spent a, a Sunday on the widow and greed. And, and this would have been a younger widow who didn't necessarily need help. She needed to change her situation. And, and instead, she would prefer an easy gig. Paul said, don't allow that. And we learn that sometimes when an otherwise healthy, we're not talking about handicapped or, or people with disabilities here, uh, an otherwise healthy person, uh, when they're taken care of, they, they don't have any hand in providing their own sustenance, sometimes they come up with too much time on their hands. Remember when we talked about that? Um, and these widows, uh, in particular that Paul's addressing, because they didn't stay busy serving God, they had too much time on their hands, they had too much energy, too much physical ability, instead of serving, they spent their time wandering from house to house. Verse 13 says that their activities uh, range from spreading gossip and other things that were not proper to mention to verse 15 indicates that the motive of some of them was even satanic. Even satanic. And the most important principle that we learned in this section is that Christians, they don't gossip or say negative things about others behind their back. Christians don't do that. We spent a Sunday on this. If you have a personal conflict, we learned uh, if that needs a resolution, what does Matthew 18 say? You go first to the individual. You try to work it out with your brother. You try to win your brother. Uh, You don't go to everyone else. If you need assistance in approaching someone, as I said, Pastor Weiler and I are here to help. And uh, if you have an issue with the church, you bring it to Pastor Weiler and myself. And we spent a whole Sunday on that. If none of those options seem palatable of going to speak to the person that you have an issue with, we said the complaint must not actually have a lot of merit in the first place. If you won't, go to try to remedy it. And uh, all we can do at that point is just say, don't worry, be happy. That's all we can do. Um, Verse 17 turns to the topic of leadership. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And this passage, along with others, we, we cited demonstrated why pastors get paid. Because of the time that it takes um, to, to uh, do the background research, the preaching, the teaching, the other services during the week that, for, that causes them to forsake another career, uh, pastors get paid. A lot of churches have issues with that. Wrongly so. You go to Scripture, it says exactly uh, how it's supposed to be done. Uh, pastors who do it for full time are to be paid. Then uh, verse 18 reveals that because elders are near the front lines during spiritual battle, they're under spiritual attack all the time. Pastors and elders and leaders of the church are always under spiritual attack. So he said in verse 18, don't entertain accusations without substantiation. Two or three witnesses at least, because Scripture assures that Satan is the father of lies. He'll craft all kinds of lies to sow discord. But when an accusation can be substantiated, and when a person is not responsive to correction, we found, when a person has been addressed on their issue and then they're not responsive to correction, that means, if you look at me at verse 20, they continue in sin, 
If they continue in sin, you rebuke them in the presence of all. Because they won't stop doing what they're doing. Uh, Verse 21 implies these principles apply not just to pastors or to leaders, to everyone. It says nothing is to be done in a spiritual spirit of partiality. Not to have bias. Everybody gets treated the same in the church when it comes to spirituality. Um, and, and virtually everything. We are body, members of one body, having different functions, equal in Christ. Paul wrapped up chapter 5, advising us to be careful about those who we lay hands on for ordination. And then finally looking to chapter 6. These are, of course, topics that we've covered a little more recent. A large portion of this chapter is about defending sound doctrine. He, he ends the way that he began with, with Timothy. Verse 3 of, of chapter 6 says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. That's a mouthful. What he's saying is some folks just like to argue. In summary, uh, they make no hesitation to promote strife or friction. Verse 4 indicates uh, it's a morbid interest to stir up controversy. Paul says they're deprived of the truth. You know, we, we don't claim, uh, we can talk about this a little bit with, with um, the membership orientation coming up. We invite folks who are thinking about becoming members. We're going to talk to you about who our church is, what we believe, what we do. We're going to look uh, in depth at our constitution and bylaws. We want you to get to know us. Um, we don't claim to, to know everything perfectly at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, never have. But we do know what we believe. We know what we're confident of. We know what we believe. We don't claim perfection. And as you attend uh, membership orientation the last Sunday of September, and the first Sunday of October. It'll take us two Sundays to get through it. We encourage you to come discover who we are if you're interested in membership. Doesn't mean you're obligated to become a member. Uh, Also doesn't mean you're automatically a member. It's just an orientation. You can decide after that whether or not you want to apply to membership, but we invite you to take part in that so you can learn more about who we are both doctrinally and personally. Uh, You'll discover we've come together as a congregation uh, for a few purposes. And they're outlined here in this chapter. Verse 7. We brought nothing into this world. We're not going to take anything out of it either. We are not here for the material world at this, at this congregation. We enjoy what God has blessed us with. We're here to serve Jesus Christ and, and to proclaim the gospel. Uh, money, though useful when used appropriately, we realize it's not going to solve our problems. We talked about that. Individually, personally, money isn't going to take care of our problems. It's not going to make them go away. It's not going to solve our problems as a congregation. It's not going to solve our problems as a nation. There's only one thing that is going to solve our problem as a nation, and that is that people would come to know Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Money isn't going to do it. Um, The love of money, verse 10, it's a root of all kinds of evil. 1 John 2.16 reminds us, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And he adds in that the world is passing away, 
and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that's what we're about. That's what we're about as our church. So we, we will do, as verse 11 says, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. And we will do what it says. We'll fight the good fight. Doctrinally, spiritually, whatever we need to do, we're going to fight the good fight. Knowing that we, we ourselves have uh, the resources to build Christ's kingdom rather than our own. We realize that we're in the process, verse 19, of storing up for ourselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. Abundant life. Jesus came that we might have life and we might have it abundantly. It doesn't come through possessions. It comes spiritually. And as we come to a close then to our study of 1 Timothy in this review, we'll see that Paul closes this letter following just an impassioned plea to young Timothy to guard the sound doctrine and the gospel message that has been entrusted to you. That's where we ended up last week. To guard what's been entrusted to us. And we find these last simple words. Grace be with you. Last words of Paul to Timothy in this letter. Grace be with you. And what's very interesting about this last word it's written in the plural it's not just to Timothy Paul here is saying everybody grace be with you and and we know that, that this grace is extended to Timothy it's extended to Ephesus it's extended to every individual who puts their eyes on this letter That God is extending His grace to you. We here, if you're visiting the first time, on behalf of Christ, we're extending our grace to you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're visiting, or if you've been visiting for a while, still not sure what this Jesus thing is about, what this sin is, haven't been convicted, we pray you're convicted now. Because God wants to extend His grace to you. And, and Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, Paul says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath and the judgment that is to come. That is God's grace. There is judgment that is going to come on sin. All of us are guilty. God has provided an escape through his Son. That's the clear gospel. That is God's grace. A lot of times people misunderstand grace. What's that mean? Something you say before dinner? Sometimes. Better be all the time, right? God's grace is a free gift, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. Psalm 31 says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, 
deliver me. Incline your ear to me, Lord. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You've ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. He's bought us back. He's purchased us back. Our sin made us debtors. Destruction was in our wake and we were facing it. And yet God has ransomed us. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, pivotal verse in the whole book as we wrap up. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ died for our sins. He rose from the dead. That's the truth. That is the pillar of truth that we defend as Christians. And there's an empty grave to prove all that happened. Witnesses to prove it happened. All you have to do is turn your sinful life back towards Christ. He said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's an offer nobody can refuse. Don't refuse it. Let's pray. Well, dear Father, as we do close this book, uh, just a, an overview of everything in it, it's really a bit overwhelming, dear Lord, that uh, we've covered all this in eight months, all these topics, many of them controversial, many of them troubling, Lord, all of them because it's your word encouraging to us as Christians because we know the truth. Lord, we pray now as we turn towards fall, Lord, and even the holidays coming not that far off, Lord, that you'd strengthen us to be a witness, that we would be this pillar of truth, dear God, that would take the gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our family, Lord, and tell them the truth. Dear Lord, as... We've listened here today to your word, to your righteousness. Lord, we pray that if there'd be anyone here today that had never made that decision, never really quite understood why God would send me to hell, that, Lord, you would show them their sin, reveal yourself, your righteousness, your holiness to them, and their need for a mediator. And, Lord God, we pray that they'd understand that there is that one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And for as your scripture tells us, Lord, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men, Lord, by which we must be saved. And we pray that you do a work in their heart. That you would regenerate their heart, Lord, with your spirit. And cause them to be born new. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for uh, the love that you shared with us through Christ. And the love that we share for one another. Lord, we pray that you encourage us and strengthen us as a body as you've done through your word, Lord, over these several months. And Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.